So Matthew chapter 9, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read about one of the 12 that Jesus called out and that followed him and that were one of the 12 apostles, one of the apostles that Jesus himself went out. There are others that were sent out by the church. The word apostle literally means to be sent out. But these 12 that were with Jesus and everything that began to be taught in the early church had to be traced back to these guys that Jesus personally sent out. And even after he was resurrected, he spent time with them and sent them out. It has to be traced back to them, to him, to Jesus. And he used these guys and those who were working with them and underneath them to be the very ones to pin down the New Testament scriptures. But here's one that is very unique. And I, I'm praying that the Lord will show you something about yourself as we look at this real person who really lived and really followed Jesus. Uh, and his name was Matthew. And we're looking in the gospel that God used him to pin down the Holy Spirit inspired it, but he used Matthew to pin it down. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. Read with me, please. So it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, meaning Jesus, heard about it, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And he pulls out some Old Testament scripture that they should have known by heart. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, you might be sitting there wondering, what do I have in common with Matthew? Do you have anything in common with him? Uh, you know, you might not think so. You know, this is a guy who actually was one of the 12 that walked with Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that you probably do have something in common with him and hopefully will have something in common with Matthew. On one side, he was someone that pretty much everyone would have thought would be least, voted least likely by his family and childhood friends, voted least likely to become a follower of Jesus. I mean, he was a sellout, man. He was a tax collector for Rome. We'll explore that a little bit. Uh, but you might have thought that about him, that he was someone that you'll probably never reach him, okay? On the other hand, when he did answer the call to follow Jesus, he became the kind of person that was motivated by this. He wanted to share Jesus with all his friends. God's wanting some more people. Jesus is looking for some more people that'll do like Matthew. And I want us to look at this simple story and use whatever you have available to try to influence as many of your friends and colleagues as you can and help them and introduce them and help them to, to know who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Matthew did. Uh, for one thing, as you read the list of the 12 that is in the next chapter, in chapter 10, it lists the 12. You're going to notice something. There's not a scribe or a priest. Um, there's, there's not a ruler of the synagogue or a Pharisee or a Sadducee in the whole bunch. Kind of odd, isn't it? 
Because these are the guys that you would think they were the leaders, you see. But there, wasn't, there were none of them, uh, none of the religious establishment of the day were among the twelve. In fact, the twelve, they were just common, what I like to call common folk. You know what I'm saying? They're just common folk. A lot of these guys were from Galilee. In fact, it looks like all of them were from Galilee and were just blue-collar guys. Just, you know, we would say they were just country redneck guys. Uh, except for one of them, the, probably the only one, none of them were from Jerusalem, and none of them were from Judea. They were all from Galilee, which was separated uh, from Judea and Jerusalem by Samaria. They were way up from the north. The only one that probably was from Judea was the guy named Judas. And since there was more than one Judas and it was a common name, it identifies Iscariot, where he's from, uh, which if we've got that right is a town in Judah. So Judas Iscariot it was probably the only one from Judah. But uh, these guys were just common people. They're just normal guys like us, right? That's why I feel like just normal folk uh, in, in a place like this, we're the kind of people that God really a lot of times uses to do amazing things, okay? Um, no one would have picked a crowd like this, but that's who Jesus picked. God in the flesh, while he was here, these are the guys he picked. And these guys, as I said, weren't very educated. They had a sincere belief in God. They did have a knowledge of the scripture, like all Jewish boys would have growing up. And they, were, they, they understood the prophecies and they were looking for the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, the coming king who would come, the Messiah prince. They knew about that, and they were understanding that, and they were, you know, like everyone else, kind of longing for that, looking for that, although no one really understood the scriptures and exactly how this would come off. They, they were looking for it. Um, the religious leaders, though, of Israel, as we know, uh, if we read the New Testament, they had become corrupt. And uh, they were the ones who you would have thought would have recognized Jesus. They were the students of the Old Testament. I mean, they memorized most of it. And they even carried scriptures around in these, these things that they wore on their wrist and on their forehead. They, they actually carried the scriptures with them when they went places. Uh, these were the ones that were schooled in all of the law. They were the interpreters and the protectors of God's word. Um, but then you have these 12 who, by the way, if we're looking at, at a common way of understanding their culture and instead of interpreting the Bible in the day that we live and understanding the, the day and the time in which it was written, you're going to understand that most of these guys were teenage boys, maybe 13 to 16, maybe a little older, maybe 18 to 20. Maybe we know Simon Peter was married, but, you know, these guys got married at 15, 16 years of age. Um, so a lot of times we have, you know, you have the, 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 the artwork from the Middle Ages, and you have all these old gray-bearded guys sitting around with Jesus. I want to promise you they didn't look anything like that. You would be shocked, and I would be shocked, if we could see what this group of guys really looked like. You'd be like, oh my goodness, Wow! That's who Jesus picked. And it was it were the leaders and the, the, the guys who understood, they thought, the law that, that weren't following Jesus. And we see in their lives the effects of influence and money and power and how it can so often corrupt 
corrupt people and get their eyes off of God and on themselves. I mean, just look at our world today, right? Look what happens among even people who are supposed to be spiritual leaders. Look in our nation we live in and how influence and money and power corrupt people, right? It happened then. That's nothing new. Well, these leaders were blinded by their own pride and their lust for power. And instead of embracing the Messiah when he came, instead of applying what they knew in the Old Testament scriptures to everything that Jesus was doing and that passage that Jesus kept bringing up from Isaiah about how the, 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 the lame would walk, the blind would see, the prisoner be set free, all these things, he, they, they, they didn't want to see that. I mean, they couldn't deny those things were happening, but when the Messiah came, they felt threatened by him, their power and their position and the way they kind of had things going. For themselves. I've often said, even in the New Testament church, in local churches, sometimes we get so focused on our way of doing stuff and the way we want to arrange it and the way we want to interpret it, that if Jesus himself showed up, the one we profess to worship, he might not even be welcome because it becomes more about us. So it's, I can't look at these guys and say this without looking at ourselves and asking the question, right? Could I be like that? Got to watch it. Anyway, instead of embracing him when he came, they felt threatened by him. And, you know, they were actually repulsed by Jesus because he didn't look and he didn't act the way they thought that he would. The way they had it in their minds, they fashioned their views of scriptures according to themselves and they interpreted it to fit their own agendas just like people do today. Uh, they missed him. As I said, it became more about themselves than it was about God and his kingdom anyway. But this list of guys who followed Jesus, that includes Matthew, it, it, and, and the, the other disciples who followed him around them, besides just the 12, all kinds of unlikely people. Have you noticed that? I mean, they were actually people who the Pharisees would say would not qualify to follow them. They, they were the kind of people that the rabbis of that day would say, you guys don't qualify to come follow me, to be a disciple of theirs. See, because the disciple didn't just go to class and listen to them teach. They followed them and lived life with them. Oh, oh, and here's another thing. So not only did Jesus, being this rabbi, teaching like no one had ever taught, doing things that no one had ever done, have this group of people, these guys, these 12 following him that didn't really look qualified. No other rabbi would probably have picked any of these guys. Not only did there, there were a multitude around them following him, listening to him, that were people from all types of places that the Pharisees would even probably consider, you know, like not worthy to follow them. They even had women who followed and ministered, and no rabbi would have ever allowed that to happen. So you see, Jesus is really breaking a lot of their custom and tradition. So many things that Jesus did. Now here's God. Here's the one who wrote the Old Testament scriptures among them. And they reject him because he just didn't do stuff the way they thought it should make sense. And he was, remember our word, uncouth, just in the way he did. all these. They, they reject, they were repulsed by him. But this group of people who followed him from all kinds of sinful backgrounds, 
I mean, there were not just tax collectors, but sinners, prostitutes, different ones who came and turned their hearts over to Jesus. You know what? I'm glad it's that way because it makes me think maybe there's room at the feet of Jesus for somebody like me too. Amen? Huh? How about you? How about, yeah, how about it includes me? There's hope for all of us. And not just, not, not just hope that we can follow Jesus. There's hope for all of us, not just that he would love us and that he would save us, but that he can use us. How about that? Huh? There's one category, however, <clears throat> from which Jesus did not pick. There's one category of people who absolutely would not follow Jesus. And it might not be who you think. It wasn't the low down dirty sinner as we would think of them in our logical minds. It were those who Jesus described as self-righteous. They wouldn't follow him. Now, whether they were among the religious elite, which most of them were self-righteous, or whether it's among the common folks sitting in the synagogue on the Sabbath, it didn't matter if they were self-righteous, they would not even want to follow Jesus. And Jesus could not and would not work with them. Why? Because they already thought, are you getting this? They already thought that they were right with God. And they thought, wow, they are a blessing to God. And they thought that they had earned their way into some kind of privileged relationship with God because of how good they were and how valuable they were, how righteous that they were. Thought that they worked themselves into a right standing with God Almighty. So imagine their reaction when Jesus pointed at them and said, you know what? Unless your righteousness exceeds these guys, you don't stand a chance of being in the kingdom of God. And they're like, whoa. <laughs> uh, wow. How offensive. You know, Jesus' words were. And then when not only that, but when Jesus began to teach and they realized they couldn't deny his wisdom, they couldn't deny the miracles, but they couldn't tolerate this one thing that Jesus kept doing. Because Jesus was pointing at these guys who thought they were all that. And he said, unless you repent. Jesus told them they needed to repent, and so did John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist even said they were a bunch of sons of snakes. Remember, he said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? I mean, that's some pretty strong language coming from John the Baptist. And Jesus said, you guys are actually not righteous. You're sinners, and you need to repent. And by the way, all y'all, which is plural of y'all. You knew that, didn't you? You would think y'all was, but if Jesus was speaking here, I'm just interpreting, right? In our language, all y'all out there, unless... You can do better than these guys who think that they're already perfect. You don't stand a chance. So they were offended. They were insulted. They wouldn't tolerate that message that they were sinners. You know what? The same way with our world today. There are a lot of people out there who 
even think they believe in God or even those who claim to be atheists when, and and, and this is something that happens occasionally as I talk to someone and and we get to this, we get to the gospel. I'm trying to share the good news and and they have something about their lifestyle. Say, so you think I'm a sinner? You think I'm going to hell? And, And the best answer I usually give is just like, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just telling you, if you believe the Bible, the Bible says not only that, but me too, we're all sinners. And if you believe this, and if you want to follow Jesus, I want to know how he's designed things. And I, know, I want to know how he said we're to live. And I want to know how he said we're supposed to treat each other. And, and I want to do that. And I want to tell you that I'm still, I'm still a work in progress. So I'm not telling you are. I'm just saying if you believe the word of God, the word of God says you are. People are offended at that. They say you are what? You are intolerant. Well, I find out there's a whole lot of things God says he's not going to tolerate. And you can call it whatever you want to call it. But there's coming a day we're going to stand before him. And since he's the creator and the owner and the designer of the whole universe, what he says is the way it is. Whether you believe it or not or want to accept it or not. And so I I just want to know what Jesus says. I I say that we have this whole extreme of people. The uh, Here's what I call it. The two extremes of look what I've done. On the one hand, you have the self-righteous who look at themselves through their own eyes and say, well, look what I've done. I'm so good, and I'm just God's gift to everything. On the other hand, you have the sinners who is looking at themselves through the eyes of Scripture, and they say the same thing, but in a different way. It's, look what I've done. I've sinned. And they bow in repentance And see that word right there. There's a lot of times that I said, Lord, I want to come before you and repent of my sins. But I didn't do it. I said it. Because you find out that the word repent means to turn. The word repent means to change. And so there's been a lot of times that I've prayed and I've confessed my sin. I've agreed together with God that, yes, I'm a sinner. And I'm going to take ownership of that. And I want to confess it to you. And I want to ask you to forgive me. And I know the blood of Christ covers my sin But if I'm not at least willing to turn and change, if I just say that with no intention of changing, I haven't really repented. I really haven't. So a lot of times when we say a lot of what God wants to do, it starts with prayer. It starts with our prayer of repentance before God. You know, and even as earlier we were honoring our veterans and we think about this place where we live, this, this nation in which we live, the thing about it is, is I feel like the first thing that needs to happen from the church is not just pointing our fingers at all the sinners in our society. The first thing that needs to happen is we need to repent ourselves of our own sin and get our hearts right with God and turn and change and be salt in a decaying world and light in a dark world and make an impact. Make a difference. These are two words that the Holy Spirit keeps convicting me with that we need to be doing right here in our own families, right here in our own community, in our state and nation and world. And that is engage and impact. We need to be engaging with people. You know, he didn't, he didn't tell us to go isolate ourselves somewhere. He sent his disciples into the world. And that we would engage in everyday life and make an impact. That let God make an impact. Now, sometimes we're making an impact, but it's not a good impact. We're making our own impact. I'm talking about God making an impact through us. So I find out that a lot of times people just don't know God's truth. 
So being on this trip last week, I'm, I'm always looking for opportunities, right? Just to be aware. And it doesn't do any good to take your Bible and go beat someone over the head with it. The old evangelism explosion class that um, my first semester at uh, Bible college, we had a class of it. It was good. There's a lot of good tools there that I still use, but the approach sometimes I was off on. Scott, I don't know if they still had that when you were at Hillsdale or not. Personal evangelism. You go through the evangelism explosion, you know, and you, you try to get to someone. And back then, we just knock on someone's door. They answer the door and say, hello, oh, my name's so-and-so. By the way, if you were to die today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? You know, it helps if you just kind of, a little bit, I don't know. No, maybe that was just me. That was just me. And I found out anything you can talk someone into, someone else can talk them out of. Kind of like selling magazines or, or a vacuum cleaner, whatever. But I want to be more natural. It should be more natural. It should be more fun than that, right? And we would do that at times, like, oh, we need to be a witness. Oh, boy. All right, we're going to have Thursday night visitation. Let's go do it. It was tough. There's a more natural way God wants this to happen, and it's the way Matthew did it. And I look for those opportunities. And it just happens as we were on our trip, and we're sitting on this boat, and um, there's a lady, Clarissa, you could overhear a good part of it, and um, she's older than me, but um, she was, uh, obviously had a thick accent, and so uh, just, just, she engaged me. You know, she was like, oh, talking to everybody, well, how are you doing? Where are you guys from? Well, we're from Missouri. Uh, like, Where were you from? I said, well, I'm catching an accent there. Well, I, I was born in Guatemala. I said, well, I would love to hear your story, you know? And, and most people do like to kind of talk about themselves, you know? I mean, not just me, but lots of people do. And I can just listen. Let me, I want to hear about that. And how she grew up there. And how her sister had, and their family had done better than most of them. Her sister had, had got the opportunity to come to the United States to go to college. And so she came to visit her. And when she came to visit her uh, at this, this university, she tried to qualify to go there too. And she met this guy. And they got married. And then here he came along. Uh, and, and I got to visit with him too. But, but um, she, she became a, a citizen of the United States and, and uh, you know, learned English and, and tell him about you know, their life and their career and all of that. And, and, and I'm just like, okay, Lord, if there's zero, is there a way in here? And then pretty soon I said, well, growing up in Guatemala, I said, you know, what was that? Like, she goes, well, you know what? I got education. Said, my grandma taught me how to read. She said, you know what? When I was five years old, I could read. When I was four years old, I started reading because my grandma would have me read the Bible to her. I'm like, thank you, Lord. I'm like, really? She goes, well, you know, most of us in our country are of really one religion. But she said, um, and, and I had to go to church. We all had to. But said, as I began to just read the Bible, she said, I just had a, a simple Spanish Bible. It was just a regular Bible. And I began to read. She had me read every day to her because her eyes were bad. And I would read. And I began to begin. She, here's what she told me. She said, as I read, said, I began to realize that a lot of the things they were doing at church, there was nothing in this book about it. And there were a lot of things that were in this book that I never heard him even talk about at church. And I said, you know, that's interesting how we do religion. Uh, and and, and we, we, you know, I, I told her, I said, well, I have to tell you, I believe the Bible. I never told her I was a pastor, by the way. Never did. Uh, I said, I have to tell you, I'm a Bible believer. And it's changed my life. And I found the thing is, I want to know. I believe this is the word of God. And the more I've gotten into it, and the more I've analyzed it, and the more I've tested it, and the more I've studied it, the more sure that I am. And I said, you know, and I do see how that so much of religion, they lose it. And I want to know who Jesus is. And I want to know what he says. And I want to know how this applies to my life. And I said, there's nothing more exciting than that. And you know, um, 
you know, so if you're not careful, you'll feel like I've got to close the deal. I don't close the deal. I'm just planting seeds, right? And I'm praying for this person uh, because she says, you know, I need to get back into the Bible and read. I said, you know, it is about a relationship with God. And I found there is nothing like it and about, you know, understanding your whole meaning and purpose in life, no matter whether good things are happening or bad things are happening, whether you've got good health or bad health, God has a plan and a purpose and a whole eternity. And it's just like, you know, to know him, to have that relationship with him. And so there are opportunities like that. Can I be a light? And in the old days, I would have been challenging her that, you know, you got it right now, right now, before you understand what good news is and understand that you're a sinner and understand what Jesus did for you and, and the power of his death on the cross and his resurrection. Before you even understand all that, I'm going to just start telling you you need to turn or burn and man, you've got to pray this prayer with me or you're going to, you're going to rot in hell, right? You know, and so might be a little soon for some of that, right? You know, we might need to help people understand. Well, Matthew was a guy that didn't really understand everything, but he understood enough. And so as we look at his story, we think we know a lot about him. We think we know a lot about him because, well, this first book of the New Testament has his name on it, right? Matthew. But yet, even in the book that the Holy Spirit used him to author some probably 40 years later, 30, 40 years later, uh, there's only a few sentences in his own book about himself and his call to follow Jesus. Just a few sentences. So we don't have a lot of info, and Mark and Luke also tell this story, so we get a little bigger picture and more well-rounded picture of it. Uh, but as we look at this whole story, we do see some things that can impact us about the way immediately he began to follow Jesus. Um, he's also known, we, all, we know this, because as we look at the parallel stories, it's the same story and the same type guy who was a tax collector, and then he threw a party and had invited all of his friends and had Jesus come over. But he's also, we find out, called Levi. That's another name of his. In Luke's version of this, it's telling the same story, same timeline, and it says in Luke 5, 27, after these things, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up and followed him. And then that whole same story about him throwing a banquet and the Pharisees grumbling about it. And then Jesus saying the same thing about those that are sick, don't need a doctor, don't feel like they're sick, don't feel like they need one. But those who are sick actually do. And, and so it's the same story. So we know from this that his uh, probably given name was Levi. That's probably what his parents named him. But at some point he began to go by Matthew. Now I don't know any of this for fact, but as I'm studying it, when the scripture doesn't give us the info, I can speculate a little bit if it doesn't do any harm to any other part of scripture, right? The best interpreter of scripture is scripture. And that's one reason why I know his name was also Matt, uh, Levi. But Matthew, the, the name Matthew means gift of Jehovah. Maybe, I don't know this, but I can't help but wonder, did Jesus maybe give him that name? You know, Jesus gave guys names. You know, names had to do more with that than identification. In those days, it had a way of describing who you are. Like he called Simon hey, Petros. It, you're Cephas in Aramaic. You're the rock. That's what that means. You're a rock. Um, and, you know, he started out as a pebble, but then he became the rock, right? Amen? Uh, so... Maybe this was way, maybe then later on he just adopted that. He wanted to refer to himself as gift of, of, of Jehovah. Uh, maybe he preferred that. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus called him that because that's the way he viewed him. You know what, you're a gift from the Father. I don't know. Possible, possible. But here's some things that we know about him is that he was a Jew. 
And he was also a publican, not Republican, just publican, just plain old publican. And that's an old English word, because some of you like use the old King James, but that's the old English word for tax collector. In the Greek, it's literally a tax collector. That's what he is. Uh, and the tax collector wasn't for the temple. It was for the Roman government who were occupying. See, the Jews living in their homeland weren't free. They lived there because Rome let them live there, but they were occupied by Rome. And uh, he worked for the Roman government. So because he did that, he was viewed as a traitor by his people. And because he was that, they would view him as spiritually unclean. History tells us that those who were tax collectors were sinners. They had bad reputations. Yeah, they did party and they did do a lot of bad stuff, but that because they had sold out and were traitors to their people, that they were not allowed in the synagogues. And those were places, similar like we do in our local churches in every community, where they would meet on the Sabbath to read from the law and to pray and all that. They were not allowed. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They were disowned. So there were a lot of, of family and cultural implications here because he had this job. By the way, they were also very rich. Now, some things we know about tax collectors, they were resented by the people. They represented and it was a constant reminder. Anytime they saw the tax collector at his office or his booth, they were reminded of Roman oppression and that we're really not free. And uh, it represented that, and it reminded them they weren't free. So this was a problem uh, for them. And, uh, but yet Matthew, though he was, or Levi, was a tax collector, yet he knew the Old Testament scriptures. And he quotes from, you know, I know that he does because he quotes from them nearly 100 times in his gospel. More than all the others combined, he quotes Old Testament scripture. Now, I want to tell you something. Um, the Holy Spirit, now Jesus said, when, when my presence, when the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit enters into you, he's going to call to mind the things that I've said. The Holy Spirit is the person of God actually used to inspire in the writing of scripture. Spirit inspired. So God wrote his word. The Holy Spirit is the person of God. That inspired, moved the prophets to write down the word exactly as God wanted in the original language. And um, however, when you're, when you're saved, God's spirit lives in you. I got to say something. I've never had the Holy Spirit call to my mind a verse that I've never read or heard. That the spirit of God is always going to use the word of God that he's authored to do his work. Now, there have been times when I've struggled. He will drive me to the scripture. Sometimes I just want him to give me just some kind of word of wisdom or knowledge. And here's what he says you want. I'll tell you where to find it. Get in my word I've already written, and I will reveal it to you. So I'm saying that to say this. I don't even think in this situation, my opinion, that the Holy Spirit was calling to Matthew's mind scriptures that he had never read. I think he had read them. And I think they were in his mind, in his heart. And the Holy Spirit is the author of that. And he brought it out and used him in a unique way 
in the gospel that he used him to write because he was equipped for it. That tells me that probably growing up, his parents maybe named him Levi because they hoped he would be a teacher of the law. Maybe, maybe I'm just saying speculation now because we don't have the info, but, but how did this happen? He knew the scripture that probably he knew it and he grew in it. I don't know what happened. I don't know whether he rebelled or whether he just got his eyes on money and things like that and went after the whole Roman job. Or I don't know if he became disillusioned. The fact that he began to listen to Jesus and follow Jesus, it kind of indicates to me there's got to be more to this story. I mean, we know there's more to the story. Just like when Peter and James and, 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 James and John and Andrew were, were, you know, washing their nets and stuff, and Jesus walks by and says, follow me, and they just left everything and followed him. I don't think that was the first time they saw this character walking by, and he just says, follow me, and, or follow me, and, uh, and they're just like, okay. Uh, they, had, they were disciples of John the Baptist. They had heard the teaching. They had been in contact with Jesus. They had heard about Jesus' teaching. They had heard John's testimony about Jesus. So there was a lot of things that were going on before Jesus said, hey, follow me. And they knew the way he said that I want, I'm calling out my disciples to follow me as their rabbi. And I'm calling you out to be one of them. They understood that. So obviously the same was true with Matthew. That maybe, I'm just saying maybe, he knew the scriptures, but maybe he really did have a heart for God. And maybe he became disillusioned, perhaps. It's just my thinking. That as he saw how that so much of what was being done was like the lady I talked to isn't anything to do with scripture. And so much of what we're doing in the synagogue and so much of they're doing at the temple and so much the leaders are telling us has nothing really to do with, with what I'm reading here. And what I know here, and maybe he became disillusioned, and maybe he became confused, and then maybe he gave into that whole thing for power and for money and became a tax collector. I don't know, but I know that as he knew scripture, at some point he went to work for the enemy, Rome. Now, you have to understand tax collectors at that time, see, Rome expected them to gather a certain amount of tax from their region. They didn't broadcast that or publish it. But the tax collector knew how much he was to collect. And so they would use intimidation and they would use extortion to get money out of people so that they would have the amount that they're supposed to collect to give to Rome. But Rome just kind of let it be this way. Whatever extra you can collect, you can keep that. That's your pay. So they were dishonest and they were corrupt. And most of them were rich because they did extort and defraud the people, and they lived a lavish lifestyle. So you see how all that put together would make the average Jewish person absolutely hate one of these guys. All right? There's another thing. One of the 12 is called Simon the Zealot. And that's a political party, you might say, among the Jews. And there were the Essenes who kind of lived like monks. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and there were Zealots or Canaanians. And they were the ones who were obsessed with starting an insurrection and an uprising and throwing Rome off their back. They were the Jewish nationalists. They really wanted this to happen. It is said that probably the insurrection that led to the destruction of Jerusalem some 40 years after this when the Roman general Titus came in, was started by some of those guys. Well, one of the disciples was Simon, and it caused him the zealot. He was one of those. So here you have somebody as far over here as you can get. And I'm about to trip over that speaker, by the way. <laughs> as far over here as you can get. And then you have 
Matthew, a sellout to Rome as far over here as you can get. I wonder how, when Jesus called his guys together, how those two guys got along at first. What are we seeing? What are we saying here? I'm just saying it is Christ that brings people together. Right? It is Satan who divides. We got division going on in our families, our community, our nation, our world. It's Christ that unites people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and everything and brings them together in one. It is Satan who is dividing. All right? So, uh, now, understand that when you... When you take a stand for Christ and you follow him, um, that there are going to be some people that you're going to have to leave behind. And this is certainly true. But before that happened, there was something that Matthew did. Um, Matthew, he had an openness and a heart of love for God. And there's something about Jesus. And as he heard Jesus, when Jesus finally came to where he was, and I love that. Jesus actually went to where he was and he asked him to follow him. He knew enough. It, it says that he left everything. Now, that's where we know something happened. There was change, right? Repentance. There was change. There was a turning. He left the money. He left the income. He left it all, it says. I don't know how I'm going to make a living now. I'm leaving it all behind. I'm going to, I'm going to devote my life to following you. He had faith in Jesus. So don't miss that part. Don't miss that part at all. Um, but not only did he follow Jesus, he thought about all of his party and friends and all of his guys he ran with, other tax collectors, and then other outcasts who would probably be kicked out of the synagogue. They have nowhere else to go. Sinners, rich or poor, probably hung with him. And he's like, I want to share Jesus with my friends. That was the biggest thing. Now, we want to share Jesus with our friends. We want to make an impact in their lives. Now, we're not going to follow them. We're going to follow Jesus. So many times I hear us being so worried about if there's people come in or if there's people around that come from a, a really rough or bad, sinful background. We're afraid, oh, we don't want them influencing our kids. Okay, how about we influence them? <gasps> Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Quit going around so intimidated. Mm. Where's the victory? Where's the power? Okay. So you're not going to hang with those old friends. You're going to hang with Jesus, but you're going to try to influence those friends. You want to be the one. You're the perfect one to introduce Jesus to them. So how's Matthew going to do this? He doesn't know that much about Jesus. He's, he's like the least likely you would ever think to be a follower of Jesus. But because he had had wealth, he has a house. A lot of people didn't. He's got some money that he's not going to have anymore, but what am I going to do with it? I'm going to throw a big banquet and I'm going to invite all of them to come. And I'm going to make Jesus a center of attention and let them hear him. I, I don't want to get in the way. I'm not, going to be the, I'm not going to be the center of attention. I'm not going to be the, the, the one in the spotlight. Jesus is. And so I'm just telling you, this is how you can be like Matthew. He just used what he had. What he had had come from not so great a past. But he used what he had to try to introduce everybody that he knew to Jesus. He had food, he had a place, and he had a party. And he invited Jesus. There were some barriers that Matthew overcame to do this. I mean, there's incredible barriers just him coming to Jesus. But then for him to share Jesus, we can do the same. 
Some of the barriers I've just got listed, and we're going to close with this. Barriers he overcame. Some people, sometimes you think, and people thought this about him, I'm sure. Some people are too sinful for God to forgive. Some people are not interested in the gospel of Christ. They won't respond no matter what you do. Or I'm not trained to tell people about Jesus. He didn't know that much yet. It's too hard for me. I'm not, I'm not able to do it. Or number four, I'll be criticized by others or embarrassed if they don't respond. You know what? He had to deal with every one of these things. Matthew's story breaks down these barriers. Like some people are too sinful for God to forgive. Well, guess what? Matthew had been a traitor to his people because he was a tax collector. He betrayed them by becoming that. And um, they led sinful lifestyles. But Jesus loved him in spite of that. You probably thought, well, boy, he's got all this money and all this stuff. Well, there was something he didn't have, and he had a hole in his heart. Jesus saw it. I'm telling you, some of the people you think that they're going to be so impossible to reach, they don't see their need for God, there's a hole in there somewhere. You just never know. They're not too far gone. They're not too sinful for God to reach and to forgive and to bring into his family. That's exactly what Jesus did with Matthew, and that's what Matthew's trying to do now with his friends. Uh, The whole reason why Jesus came is to save what we thought was the unsavable, to redeem what we thought was irredeemable. That's what he specializes in. The other one, people are not interested in the gospel. They won't respond. A lot of times we might think that, but you know what? Jesus looked into Matthew's lonely life and spoke to him, and then Matthew followed Jesus and invited others, the poor, the tax collectors, the rich, the sinners, the prostitutes, whoever. He brought them there. People try to hide their needs, but you know what? Um, they might be more interested than you. Here's what I'm finding out. They're not so interested in just church. They're not just so interested in me, but they're interested in the gospel, interested in Jesus, right? I want to point them to Jesus. We're here to make followers and disciples for Jesus, not us. Sometimes we get out of the way and introduce people to Jesus. We find out that they will respond. I don't know how many of these people also follow Christ, Probably some of them did. Probably some of them received his teaching. And, um, and so that was the other thing. You know, you might could say, like Matthew could have said, I'm not trained to tell people about Jesus. It's too hard for me. Well, what can I do? What do I have? Moses said, I can't go speak to the people. I, I can't talk plain. But if, but if, right? And God says, well, let's see. What have you got in your hand, Moses? A stick. God says, okay, let's start with that. What do you got in your hand? What have you got in your life God can use? And that's exactly what he did. He didn't forget his old associates. And he shared what little bit he did know about Jesus. Come listen to this guy. You've never heard anything like it. He's not like those other guys. You know, those other rabbis, they won't get close to us. He's coming to my house and going to eat my food. Woo! Pharisees and rabbis would never do that. They thought if you got too close to a sinner, you'd get like their spiritual cooties on you or something, right? But Jesus is actually at his house, set his, eating his food. I mean, there's some people that I love. I mean, there's some people that I know that I love and I care about, but I, I, don't, I don't know how they keep their house and prepare their food. You know, might be a little bit, mm, I might be a little careful. But here's Jesus. So, so what I'm saying is this, is whenever you visit someone in their home, you're in their home, that's fellowship. When you eat their food, that's deep fellowship, especially in that culture. Jesus was having deep fellowship with them. Matthew used what he had. 
And then the other thing is, well, what if I'm criticized by others or embarrassed if people don't respond? Well, yeah, people did criticize. Somehow or another, religious leaders saw it, and they pulled the disciples aside. I don't know whether it was right then or later. and said, hey, how come your master's? He can't be for real because look where he is. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's not just for real. That's God come down to us in the flesh. Where does he go? Right into the lowest of the low. He's right there with them. Jesus hears about it. I don't know whether he overheard them or this happened later. It doesn't tell us. But he said, here's your problem. He said, you understand. Somebody who's not sick doesn't need a physician. Or Here's the whole point. We know they were sin sick as we take the whole scope of Scripture. But if you don't think you're sick, you don't want to go to the doctor. I mean, how many of you healthy people just think it's a great, fun day to go to the doctor? You're not going to do it unless you're sick. And if you're a guy, you have to get really sick and get to hurting, and then, like, you're the sickest person that's ever been, right, uh, before you go to the doctor. Uh, but that's Jesus' point. You guys don't think you're sinners, so you don't think you need me. But I'm telling you, you're as bad as sinners or worse sinners than these guys. And that's one thing. The self-righteous don't see their need of repentance or need of Jesus or need of prayer. But sometimes when people are there, that's at least one advantage they have. They can admit, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need Jesus. And I know I need to turn and trust him. You at least know that. Some of them probably did. Some of them probably joined the criticism. But you know what? Matthew followed Jesus. Matthew impacted them and influenced them. But he didn't follow the critics. He followed Jesus. That's what he wants us to do. And history tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but history records that Matthew followed him all the way to death and that years later, after he wrote this, that Matthew went as far as what we would now call Ethiopia, spreading the gospel and sharing Jesus until he was martyred because of his relationship with Jesus and he died for Jesus. That's our guy. That could be any of us. Let's pray. Father.